From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. And today we'll be learning from our veteran registered investment advisor, Adam Morris. Today is the third installment of our investing horror stories series. And Adam Morris deconstructs a few investing stories and extracts the lesson for our knowledge and entertainment. And hey, if you enjoy this episode, we invite you to listen to parts one and two. They are equally great. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Keep it simple each and every week. If you have any episode suggestions or corrections, be sure to email us at podcast at assetbuilder.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's get to the show. So this is part three. I'm excited about it. And at the end, the last one is going to be, it's not mine because I think this one that I'm going to talk about is much more interesting and it makes mine pale in comparison. Uh, But it is someone I'll say, that I know very well, this is not made up. I can assure you. And it's, it's something, it's something, no, it's something that I tell a lot of people because it's, it's that like, it's that kind of like, wow. Like it's one of those kind of decisions that like, wow, life can go that way or that way based on a decision. So, um, we'll get to that at the end. I think it'll be kind of interesting, but we're going to hit up a few more of these, uh, these horror stories that Jared's found for us. Uh, and I'm going to get Jared's opinion on some of these too. Okay. I'm, I'm tired of hearing myself out. I want to hear Jared's thoughts because oh. he's a smart guy sometimes. Uh, just to be fair, these are from, I can't believe this website exists. It's called badinvestmentadvice.com. There you go. And I didn't see this the last time. I feel like this is a new site. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty entertaining. I love it. Yeah, it's an entertaining site. Okay. You ready for story number one? It's a shorty. Let's do it. Okay. Many brokers tell stories about clients who refuse to take profits on winning positions to avoid capital gains taxes, holding on well after the stock had run its course and suffering a loss instead of taking profit. That is the story. Yep. So this is a pet peeve of mine. And not necessarily like, who's to say whether a stock has quote run its course or not? Like I would argue that who knows? Now I do absolutely feel his pain or her pain, whoever the advisor is, because the capital gains thing is like a daily struggle. So just as a recap, capital gains tax is the tax that you pay in a taxable account on a position that has appreciated in value. Right. So I take $100 that I've earned, I've already paid income tax on it, that $100 I invest. Now that $100 will never be taxed again, in theory. I invest that $100 in a stock, the stock goes up. Now that hundred is worth 150. I then sell that stock. I owe capital gains tax on the $50 that has grown from that hundred. Now there's two different kinds of gains tax. There's a short-term gains, which you want to try to avoid and a long-term gains. Short-term gains are gains that have grown within the last 365 days. Long-term gain, and they're, they're taxed at ordinary income tax rates, which are higher than long-term gains. Long-term gains, obviously any gains that have been there for more than a year. Long-term gains are actually a good thing. They're pretty much the best tax rate you're going to find other than no tax. But what I, the reason it's a pet peeve is because if you wait around long enough, if you don't lock in those gains, eventually they're going to go back down, Mm -hmm. right? And you're going to lose your opportunity to sell those gains and then buy something that's cheap. So this is why we rebalance because it doesn't require that we determine what stock has run its course or not. We just look at the numbers and say, here's our target. This is grown by this much. 
this has grown or this has shrunk by this much. Those numbers should be equal, right? Mm -hmm. the, the amount that has grown should be the equal amount that the other thing has shrunk as a percentage. So I want to sell what's grown to buy what has shrunk. So that I'm selling at a high and buying at a low. Am I selling at the absolute highest? Probably not, but relative, right? It's better priced than the other thing. So over time, you're getting these multiple entry points and you're getting this dollar cost averaging effect that you're getting good entry and exit points from the market. That's what rebalancing is? Essentially, yeah. Do you do that on a time schedule or is it just only when it's out of balance? Some, some people do, some people don't. You can do, I think for someone that's doing it themselves, probably having you know, a day on the, on the calendar each year where you do it is probably a good idea because if you don't, it's easy to just kind of forget about it, not do it. For us, we do this every day. We have a drift method. So essentially we have a target tolerance that we're willing to get away from target, right? So if we're aiming for a certain mix of asset classes, we have the target, but then on day one, those targets start to move because prices move. And mm -hmm. then as those targets reach a certain band, a threshold, that'll kind of trigger us to go in and evaluate and see, okay, does this make sense? Now, of course, before we do this, if there's going to be taxable implications, we'll discuss that with the client, make sure they're okay with it. But we always get pushback. Of course. Because I, I think there's this perception that do some of your fancy finance stuff and just get rid of the taxes. It's like, well, <laughs> that doesn't exist. I mean, look, paying taxes, especially capital gains tax, it's better to have to do it than to not. Mm -hmm. That's what I always say. So... Yeah, it absolutely does resonate um, as an advisor. There's no lesson in there for an investor other than listen you know, to your advisor. Avoid short-term gains if if yeah. you can. You know that's relatively easy to do, but don't cry and fuss over long-term gains. It's a good problem to have. You ready for number two? Ready. Okay. Are you having fun? I'm having a great time. Okay, so sometimes big, powerful companies double down on losing strategies. I think we talked about this. If you hold their stock and do the same, you risk following their misplaced strategy with your own misplaced investment strategy. Washington Mutual at the time of 2006-2007 financial crisis was one such case. Many institutions bought Washington Mutual stock thinking it was available at a bargain price. One broker tells a story of how he followed the advice of just one analysis provider, Morningstar, and mm -hmm. bought in. Mm -hmm. Sadly for these holding shares, Washington Mutual was taken over by the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, and J.P. Morgan Chase bought it in September 2008 for $1.9 a fraction of its earlier valuation. Those who bought in 2006 or 2007 lost heavily. Mm -hmm. So that's the story. Do you have a, a lesson? Um, again. The this, same lesson? Yeah. <laughs> these are all the same. I mean... <laughs> if you invest enough, you're going to have, I wouldn't so much call that a horse. You're going to have wins. You're going to have losses. Yeah. Right. Like with anything, if you play a sport, if you do anything that where you're keeping a score, you're not going to win them all. Mm -hmm. And this is just one of those. Now, if you're putting all your eggs in this basket and need it to win, that's risky. Um, I think, you know, in hindsight, it wasn't that shocking that WAMU didn't, you know, that they were consolidated at a bargain basement price. Um, Mm -hmm. To be fair to investors at the time, it was somewhat a new precedent for the government to step in and, you know, start dicing these companies up and, and selling them off and intervening in that way. Um, but again, I don't know if there's a way to necessarily avoid things like this happening. You know, there is no magic analysis you can do. There's no recipe other than diversification. <laughs> don't buy only a few things. Um, and I hope these stories produce other advice rather than diversification, but I guess it's not so bad to hammer that one home, huh? Well, I mean, 
it's just, if the question is how can other investors, mm-hmm. you know, avoid this? Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, it yeah. wasn't even at the time, it wasn't a secret that WAMU was distressed. So you could have a blanket strategy that says, I'm not going to buy anything that is quote unquote distressed. Now that still means you got to come up with, you know, a methodology to identify distressed stocks. But if it's distressed, don't buy it. If yeah. that worries you. Yeah. The problem is sometimes these distressed companies do make a comeback. And you, I mean, Wells Fargo is an example of this. Yeah. Wells Fargo had a big kind of PR problem over the last five, six years with, you know, fake accounts being opened and, um, you know, false reporting on some of their account information, deposit information. They've done a pretty bang up job on kind of repairing that. So mm. if you could have bought at the right time, bought at that dip, then yeah, I mean, those stories do exist. So there's not really a one size fits all solution to these, these types of stories. But I would argue, I would push back and say, this isn't really a horror story. I mean, right. maybe if you worked at Washington Mutual or you ran Washington Mutual, but you know, for an investor, yeah, if you put everything in Washington Mutual, if that, if that m- makes or breaks you, hmm. you, you own some blame in that situation as well. So their lesson is don't be blinded by the size of a company and past grandeur. Like they're just as prone to failed strategies, hubris and groupthink as anyone else. Yeah. Big companies. So it's the same thing with like your family budget, right? Like you can have a budget on a small income and you can have a budget on a large income. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, your books can be out of balance. Right. So big companies look big and I know it, everything about our human perception reinforces strength. Like they have so many, you know, look at these fancy offices and so many people and look at their massive scale of operations. But if they're not making money, that's going to come crashing down. So they're just, they're playing with bigger numbers, right? And the, 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 the fallout or the reward from what they're doing is going to be bigger on both sides. So don't be fooled. I mean, I agree with that. Don't be fooled by the size of the business. We've seen big businesses fall overnight for years, Bear Stearns, you know, Enron, obviously. I mean, there's a lot of examples of big companies that very quickly fall because they have the same problem that everyone else does. You got to be bringing in more money than you're, than you're spending. Yeah. And that law does not discriminate. Right. And diversify. <laughs> and diversify. Correct. All right. You ready for number three? And then I'm, I'm just so excited to hear yours. Let's do it. Okay. There are many horror stories of investors trying to apply the approach that works in a bull market when the market has actually turned and is topping out. You could probably pick any stock ticker on the board and someone will have lost that money on it by trying to get in and out when the market went against them. We've heard that famous phrase that it is easy to make money in a bull market. If you are short or inter- or intermediate term trader, what's that? If you're investing for the, like, so the money that you're using has a use case, right? Like I'm investing with this money, maybe it's for my retirement or maybe I want to buy a home in five years with this money. Oh. So if I'm going to use this money 30 years from now, I'm a long horizon investor. Right. If I need this money or I plan to be out of the market in two years, I'm a short horizon investor. Intermediate would be in between short and long. Oh, interesting. Okay. So eight to 12 to 13, something like that. Oh, okay. So if you are a short or intermediate term trader, you have to take measures when the market tops out. All of a sudden being a short term bull no longer works. You have to understand where the market is going over the time frame that you are investing. Understanding market cycles is important here. I guess this isn't really a horror story, but that that's the story, I guess. Yeah. I guess understanding market cycles. Yeah. Not a horror story. Um, <laughs> I guess kind of a useful point. I mean, yeah, markets have cycles, right? They have run-ups, they have top-offs, they have drops, and they have bottom-outs. I mean, the reason understanding your horizon is important is because 
the shorter the amount of time you're going to be invested for, the less sure you can be of what's going to happen during that time. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you give me 30 years to invest, I can be highly, highly, highly confident that I can't tell you by how much, but I'm 99.9% certain that at the end of that 30 years, the market will have gone up relative to the, where I started on day one, 30 years ago. Over 15 years, I'm still pretty confident. Even 10 years, still pretty confident. Three years, now I'm not so confident. One year, I'm absolutely not confident. Mm -hmm. So the less amount of time you have, volatility can rear its ugly head more, more easily. So if you are going to need that money, right? If you're an investor over the short term, if you do hit a top, right? Like if things run up, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's more reasonable to sell at that point in time because it's less likely that if there is a drop, you're going to have enough time to recover and get back to that previous high. Does that make sense? Yes. I don't know if I explained that very well. I but think explained it well. It's just the idea of, and again, why is this, right? Well, because we everything that we talk about markets is based on history, right? We're, we're trying to take history the best we can and extrapolate what might happen in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, we're looking at data. One year is just less data than 30 years. Right. So it's less reliable, right? And that's what the data shows us. Like, if you go back, I think I've said this before, if you go back over the S&P 500 yearly returns, it's almost a coin flip, whether it's going to be up one year or down one year. Yeah. I mean, that's literally how it looks. If you just gave it a green mark or a red mark, it's like green, red, green, red, green, green, red, 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 green, red, green. Yeah. And it's that back and forth. It's just that the magnitude of the greens are usually a little bit higher than the magnitude of the red. Right. So again, it's just about giving yourself, the more time you can give yourself, the more time you're giving those those trends to show up and to win out. Yep. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's a really a horror story, but I mean, it's a good thing to know. Yeah. You know, be, be careful. Um, and just to, with risk in general, I would tell, you know, there's two ways you can kind of um, mm -hmm. try to take advantage of risk, right? Because again, risk and reward, you got to take risk to get the reward. One way is try to take all the risk when you think that risk is minimized, right? So that would be market timing. So I'm going to try to sit out of the game when I think things are going to go down. If I think they're going to go up, I'm going to put everything in aggressively. And I'm going to make these decisions over and over again over time. Okay? And the reason you would do that is because, A, you think you have a methodology that would allow you to make those predictions, and B, because you want to capture all the upside and none of the downside. Mm -hmm. Right? So that would be ideal. Or <laughs> you could take a proper amount of risk that you would be comfortable with at any point in the market cycle. So whether markets are at a tip top or markets at a bottom, I've made the decision one time at the outset that says, this is the amount of risk I'm comfortable taking. I will live with the result. Okay, now, again, I'm going to point to data because that's all I really have to go on. Over time, it doesn't mean the first set doesn't work, but it works less reliably, much less reliably than the second option. And I mean, we do the second option because we're investing for the type of people that I think that makes the most sense. You need to be a pretty savvy investor to even have a shot at using the first method. And mm -hmm. even then, again, it points more to chance than it does data. So that's why we want to do it the, the second way is because we want to take advantage of, you know, the amount of data we have that says over 30 years markets go up more than they go down. And when you do it that way, you're much less likely to panic and sell in a down market because you're not taking all the risk. And so if you're wrong, right, which you're likely to be, instead of having your foot on that pedal all the way down, you're not quite taking that much risk that you're much more comfortable to kind of ride out that volatility and come out on the other side. Right. So, um, exactly. Yeah.
That's what I would tell you. I mean, what did you learn from that, Jared? Long-term investing is the way to go. That's what I think. For most people and most of their money, that is absolutely correct. Unless I just wanted to have fun because long-term investing isn't really fun. No, it's not sexy. Yeah. It is not sexy. And I think, you know, that's part of the problem. I mean, I think with talking about this stuff is it like we just joked about it today. You're not going to make Wolf of Wall wow, Street like about it's, it's all diversification. It's all diversification. Well, that's because a lot of these mistakes that you hear about, these horror stories could be avoided if you just diversify. diversify. But people don't want to diversify because you're not usually going to hit grand slams diversifying, right? Because you're exposing yourself to that downside as well. So, Well, 30 years later, it'll turn into balance. a grand slam. Correct. But that's hard for human beings to see yeah, and to make decisions on that. So uh, it's really just a mental thing. Oh, really? We, we, we'll do a podcast here soon on, I think we may have done one. Maybe we'll do a part two on the biases that are, that are very prevalent Good. in investing. Oh, I like that. So There's much. a lot. I, I wrote a newsletter on it years ago about, I mean, it's fascinating the amount of biases that show up, particularly in investing I love um, that. because people care a lot about their money as they should. It represents their time and effort and hard work and, yeah. and their future in a lot of cases. Um, but we are very subject to biases that really cloud our decision-making. Yeah. So we'll do an episode on that. Um, That's cool. I think that'd be good. But can we get to my story? Yeah. I think it's interesting. Yeah. Probably way more interesting than this last So two. it's... Go ahead. And I don't even know if it's a horror story. I mean, <laughs> the individual that I'm going to be talking about, they're fine. Like, they have a great life. It's not a problem. But it's just kind of interesting to kind of look back and go, wow, like how different things could be. So... Yeah. I'm not going to disclose who this person is. Gary. <laughs> no, it's, it's someone close in my personal life, close to me. Um, and this is a person like I look up to, um, I admire both in, in professional settings and personal settings, just a great person all around. So this person, very smart individual, started a business, I'm going to say in the 80s, okay? This business, it did well. I think they grew up to the neighborhood of maybe 125, 150 employees. They were, let's just say, in the tech sector. Okay, so this was back like in the early days. Mm-hmm. And as you do, you go to these different trade shows, right? And happened to run into um, another business that was there that was looking to get into the tech industry. And this business prior to had not been in the tech industry. They were in a whole different industry. They had basically decided, we're going to get out of that industry. We want to get into tech because they saw tech as being the future. Not a bad bet. So they were basically there and they were publicly traded with a pile of cash looking for someone to buy mm-hmm. to kind of get into the business. And like a, a chance introduction, they met my, the person that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, they end up agreeing to sell the company to this, this organization. Um, and they kind of become, you know, their company kind of became the first of three pillars in this new entity, this new tech company. They were kind of the, the first and kind of main central pillar um, that they still are today. Mm. Well, part of the comp, right, for this... Now, now, he was the co-founder and CEO of this company at the time they sold. So at the time they sold, obviously, a large part of their comp for that transaction was stock in the new organization, Right. It wasn't just a straight up cash transaction. These things rarely are. So he got stock. Well, very early on in this company's history, there was a lawsuit that was ongoing, right? And these lawsuits happen a lot in tech today with like code and where did code begin? Who owned the code? It's very complicated. Not only understand it, I'm not in that world, but 
there was a lawsuit. I couldn't even tell you what, I can't remember exactly what the lawsuit was about, but he was telling me, he talked to the chief counsel at the time and the chief counsel was like, you know, I've been doing this a long time. This one's kind of a coin flip. And this was like an outstanding. So I want to say if I'm remembering correctly, they had bought their second company. So my, my friend, right? I say friend, my friend sold their company. And then a couple months later, they bought the next company that they wanted to kind of be the second wing of this new organization. Mm -hmm. That second company that they bought had this as like already when they bought it, had this lawsuit that was kind of ongoing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that was, that was known as part of the due diligence, but they kind of made a bet. Like they just kind of factored that into the risk of, okay, this is a thing that we're buying now Mm -hmm. that has this risk kind of hovering over the deal. And without getting into the details and boring everybody, it kind of, took a turn for the worse for a time, right? And there was a moment where they thought, oh boy, this is not going to go well for us. And the stock, I think, went to like a little over a dollar. I know. And my friend sold like the majority of their stock at that point in time. Now, fast forward a couple months and their attorneys worked something out and that lawsuit went away. And now their business is thriving years later. The stock is trading, I want to say, at like $370 a share. Wow. So that's, wow. I mean, and again, I'm, no one's crying over, you know, like I said, he's a great guy, like has a wonderful family. I mean, there's nothing you can say about him. And it didn't ruin his life. He's a very well-adjusted individual. It didn't plummet him. He didn't, you know, jump off a bridge because of what he lost. But it's a testament to he's one of the smartest people I know in my life. And I count on a lot for like advice and just, and he's not, he's not a family member. He's not, you know, he's just a guy that I know that I've kind of leaned on throughout the years as a mentor. He's one of the smartest guys I know. And he made that mistake Mm -hmm. and he went, I mean, that's the kind of decision that, you know, puts you into a very kind of small (laughs) area of people in terms of like the financial ramifications of that decision. Yeah. So, I mean, just, you don't even need to know the number of shares. All you need to know is the difference in price was a dollar a share and $390 a share. Yeah. And then pick your number of shares and you can kind of tell yourself the ramifications of that decision. Um, now credit to him. He, he has the attitude that, Hey, he's lucky to kind of be in the situation he was. He got this chance introduction at a, you know, industry conference years ago and it worked out. Yeah. He's the first person to tell you, you know, he's not just a product of his own smarts. Like a lot of things just kind of went his way. So he's just, he comes from an attitude of gratefulness. So credit to him, but for other people, it could kind of mess with you. Right. So if someone like that, who is every other area has been successful, obviously very intelligent. If they can make that mistake, anybody can make that mistake. Right. And it just goes to show he was in it. He was an officer of the company and he made a, made a bad bet on, you know, what he thought was going to happen. Mm-hmm. How much less do we know Yeah, as outsiders yep. going, oh man, yeah, you know, this is where the company's headed. We have no idea where that company's headed. That's Most exactly of the time, right. we yeah. don't really know. You yeah. know, we can make a bet, but it's better to just not have to rely on your, your ability to make that decision and rely on the trends that show up in the data over, over much more, you know, yep. significant periods of time. Uh-huh. So yep. that's my story. Uh, I have a lot one. more. I don't have anything quite as, I don't think dramatic, but I have a lot of, and I'll, I'm sure I'll share them, you know, as we continue to go, but I have a lot in my own life of just little dinky mistakes that I've made that I've tried to learn from and correct. And I'm sure we'll get to those. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're a bad investor or anything like that, or that you're dumb. 
no. or unlucky even. And they're not even all, you know, investing necessarily as they are just like financial, yeah. you know, just like how do you buy new cars? Like how do you, or just, I say new cars. How, how do you acquire vehicles for your family? Do you lease? Do you buy? Do you buy used? Do you, mm-hmm. there's a lot of mistakes I've made there. Just little things here and there, um, budgeting mistakes that, you know, I think would be helpful for folks. So we'll, we'll continue to do these kind of episodes. I think we want to, you know, keep going in more of this kind of personal direction of just opening ourselves up to what we've kind of learned, the good and the bad. And, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully that'll be beneficial to those of you that are, that are listening and sticking with us. Well, considering our listenership, they, they must, because hey. they continue to listen each well, and every week. We're, we're, let and me we say, we are for grateful them. for all of you guys that, oh, that yeah. do listen, uh, means a lot to us. We love doing this. And, yeah. Um, you know, reach out to us. We always tell you to. We love your emails. We are here. Yeah, we love getting these emails. They're enlightening for us. Kind of helps us gauge. You know what? What of this is working? What isn't? How can we get better? Mm-hmm. Uh, so let us know. Send us an email. Always happy to to chat with you. Um, and send us some of your horror stories. We want to hear them. We'll we'll talk about them. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Adam. I enjoy it. I look forward to doing it again with you soon. Sounds good. We'll talk right, to sure. you soon. Bye. podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com. If you have a question for either Michael or Adam concerning this topic or anything else, please visit assetbuilder.com slash podcast. There you can find their contact information as well as the show notes for every single episode.